This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. It's your host, Tim Link, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. My special guest today is Paula Mounier, author extraordinaire. Uh, we're going to talk to Paula a little bit about her uh, book, A Borrowing of Bones, a wonderful novel, and we'll get into the details of that particular book. And also want to talk to Paula a little bit about her uh, writing styles and how she went about putting together the book. So we'll learn a little bit about everything from the expert. Uh, so it's going to be an exciting show, fun for everyone. So everybody hang tight. We'll come back right after these commercial breaks. You're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Today's episode is sponsored by Hanover Square Press and the Secret Language of Cats How to Understand Your Cat for a Better, Happier Relationship by Suzanne Schatz. Have you ever wondered what your cat is saying? In The Secret Language of Cats, Shots offers a crash course in cat phonics to help you crack the cat code. Perfect for the fans of The Lion in the Living Room and the Inner Life of Animals, The Secret Language of Cats by Suzanne Shots is available for purchase today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Uh, joining me now is author Paula Mounier. Paula, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. And congratulations on the, the novel, A Borrowing of Bones. So we're excited about that. Yes, me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about the, without giving all the goodies away, tell us a little bit about the premise of the book and uh, how it all came about. Well, about four years ago, I was lucky enough to help run a fundraiser with Leo Maloney, who's a thriller writer who loves dogs. And he was doing this fundraiser for Mission Canine Rescue, an organization that rescues military working dogs and repatriates them with Forever Home. And I just fell in love with all these dogs. I met all kinds of working dogs. I met soldiers and their bomb-sniffing dogs. I met game wardens and their illegally procured fish-sniffing dogs. I met you know, law enforcement and their drug-sniffing dogs. I just fell in love with them. And after that fundraiser, I was writing this book called The Writer's Guide to Beginnings, which was a book intended to help writers start off with a great first chapter. Mm. And so I needed my own first chapter that I could show through various revisions over the course of the book. So I just thought, well, I'll just write one. And I'll put in everything I love. And I'll put in these working dogs, military working dogs. And I'll put in Vermont and the Green Mountains. And I'll put in soldiers because I was raised in a military family. And so I wrote this first chapter about Mercy Carr, who's an MP in Afghanistan, and she's wounded in battle. And it's the same battle that kills her fiancé, Martinez. And he's a dog handler. And his bomb-sniffing dog is Elvis, a fierce and fabulous Malinois. And when he dies, he says to her, take care of my dog. Because the thing about these working dogs is the Army does an okay, sort of okay job when the dogs are tired of finding them forever homes with their former handlers. But some of these dogs are not Army dogs. They're defense contractor dogs. And those dogs can end up in shelters, in kennels, abandoned. And that's when Mission Canine Rescue goes and finds them. So I made... Elvis, one of these dogs. So she has to go home and she has to find this dog who's suffering from PTSD and is abandoned in one of these places, bring him home to Vermont. And together they're sort of marching off their grief through the Green Mountains every day. 
And that's, of course, when they stumble across an abandoned baby and a shallow grave. So a lot of activity, a lot of a lot of things going on, and there's a lot of things that are popping in my mind. First of all, I want to I will come back to the writing of the book and, and how you just so eloquently said, "I think I'll just write a book about this." <laughs> I know it's not that easy, but we'll come back to that in a little bit. <laughs> but the characters in the book, you mentioned quite a few of them. I mean, how did you come about developing the characters? Uh, were the loosely based on people and animals that you had worked with with the rescue organization or with the uh, through the fundraising or were they uh, just ones that came to mind and thought this would be a good character for the book well the dogs are certainly based on real dogs they're inspired by the real dogs that i met the elvis the malinois the military working dog the bomb sniffing dog he's inspired by the bomb sniffing dogs i i met through mission canine rescue the search and rescue dog who's paired up with the Vermont Game Warden, who helps Mercy and Elvis solve the crime, that dog is inspired by our own rescue, who's a Newfoundland retriever mix named Bear. And Susie Bear is inspired by that dog. So certainly the dogs are inspired by real dogs. The people, I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald, maybe, who said it takes six people to make one character. (laughs) And I think that's true, you know. So I just, there's sort of an amalgamation of different people that I've known. There you go. Well, with putting together the the characters and putting together the novel, uh, I know you said it was a five year process that, to put it all together. Was that from uh, start to finish when you first uh, put the first letter of that first infamous chapter that you talked about, uh, all the way through publishing, or was it five years of doing research and being involved in in uh, the activities that you were involved in to volunteer? Well, it took several years. My agent read the Writer's Guide to Beginnings, and she read the sample chapter that I wrote about Mercy Carr and Elvis. And she said, you know, that's really good. You should finish that. And I said, really? And she said, yes. And so I did. And she sold it. And the next thing I knew, I had a free book deal. It was very exciting. So So is this the first in a series of these books, or is it just three different uh, approaches, three different books that you're writing? No, it's a series. Book two will be out next year. Okay. And I just finished it, and that was a tough one. Wow. Book two is always tough. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So what should we uh, go back to the book here, A Borrowing of Bones? What should people be looking for in the, in the book? Is this a real thriller, would you call it? Is it a, a mixture of uh, different types of uh, a fiction you're putting in there? Is it a, What would they walk away with after reading the book, A Borrowing of Bones? Well, I like to think that it's a lot like Margaret Matsushima's books or – or even one reviewer compared it to a Julia Spencer Fleming series. I think it's sort of a traditional mystery in the fact that it has clues and it has, you know, murderers to find and, and to identify and to bring to justice. But it also has excitement and it, so it has aspects of a thriller as well. There's, you know, all kinds of scenes where the dogs and the and Mercy and Troy, the game warden, have to work together to save the baby, save the mother's baby, all those kinds of exciting scenes. So I think it's a little mix. It's sort of your traditional mystery thriller, and it was great fun to write. And like I said, I got to put all the things I love as a longtime mystery fan and a longtime dog lover. I got to put all the things I love about dogs and mysteries in the book. Yeah, and I think that's a great thing, uh, you know, about it. If obviously there are plenty of uh, murder mystery fans out there, and I know they'll love the book from that aspect. But there's also uh, dog lovers, animal lovers. They're going to love, you know, tracking down what's going on with Elvis and what's going on with the characters, and how they play out from uh, from the animal standpoint. Uh, but also you get to combine your tidbits of, uh, you know, the work that you did to uh, to help the organization. 
Right, right. I mean, I'm very passionate about all of these rescue groups. We just rescued another dog three weeks ago from White River Junction Rescue in Vermont. And there are so many dogs that need rescuing and, and cats, too. We have a rescue cat as well. And, of course, there are cats in the book because Ursula would be very upset with me. <laughs> <laughs> there weren't cats in the book. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, that's especially uh, never seen a cat, uh, you know, not want to defend themselves. It's like, where are all these dog books going out there? <laughs> so it's funny. I have to admit, though, I don't see a, on the cover or on the back, I don't see a cat on there. We had to talk to your publicist about that. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. They went with the dog. Yeah, I don't know. I always make it. Uh, it's funny when I talk about uh, writing and publishing. You know, the books I've written and, and published. You know, they're they're nonfiction, but you know, dogs always sell. And I said, well, you know, there's cats stories in these books too, so they put a cat and a nice little picture on the back. You know, so oh, that's a good sure. idea. Yeah, I don't know if it appeased the cats or not getting <laughs> back billing, but that's okay. <laughs> yes, well, you know, cats are always the stars in their own mind. So that's right. That's right. They know it. They don't need the accolades. <laughs> Great. Well, when everybody picks up a copy of the book, A Borrowing of Bones, and they take a look at it and read through it and love it, uh, what do you hope they walk away from after reading the book? What's your uh, takeaway on that? Well, what I hope they take away is the sense that dogs really do. They really do improve our lives. They enhance our lives in every possible way. And I also hope they understand a little better the contributions that working dogs make to our lives and to our soldiers and our law enforcement and our first responders. These dogs work so hard and they deserve to be living their lives once they're retired in good places with good people. And and that's really my, if I have a mission, that's really the mission. Yeah. That's good. That's a great takeaway, you know, and expand on that. I, I really, the thing I found fascinating about the book was, you know, uh, I see a lot of books written about military dogs, whether they're fiction or, or nonfiction type books, which is fantastic. Getting that message out, getting those dogs back home, uh, getting them in good homes where they're with their original soldier partners or whether it's uh, another family is fantastic. But as you mentioned, I, the other first responders and the other dogs that are involved, I don't see or hear a lot about that. No, and there's so many of them now, especially, you know, with all of these natural disasters, with the uh, terrorist threat across the country, you know, bomb-sniffing dogs are in great demand, drug-sniffing dogs are in great demand by, for law enforcement, search and rescue people. There's a fabulous group here in New England that I uh, talk about in the book, too, that, you know, whenever somebody goes missing in the woods, people are always getting lost in the woods, right? Hikers, hunters, you know, children, the elderly, and when they go missing... Not only do you know, law enforcement and game wardens search the woods with their dogs, but there are volunteers who volunteer with their dogs, train their dogs, go through enormous training so that they can come out every call and help find these missing people. Absolutely. So all of them need accolades because they do great work. And I, I love the one you mentioned about the, uh, was it Fish Game Wildlife, a fish smelling dog. I mean, who, I have to scratch my head for a minute. It's like, you know, that's true. That's <laughs> yeah. Yes, they're dogs who, who catch poachers. That's right. And we need those dogs. And they work with game wardens and wildlife law enforcement all the time. And it's great because we people shouldn't be poaching. We, we need to save and preserve our wildlife. And these dogs help us do it. There you go. So big shout out to all the hardworking dogs and all they require is just a, a good roof over their head and a pat on the back and a lot of love and they'll go out and do their work. Exactly. And a peanut butter Kong. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Nothing better than filling that Kong up with peanut butter, stick it in the freezer, and then let them munch on that all day. That's that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Well, we're going to come back right after these commercial breaks. We'll talk a little bit about uh, more about the book, A Borrowing of Bones, and get into a little bit more about the writing styles. So everybody hang tight. We'll come back right after these commercial breaks. You're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Well, four to be exact. Put on a perfectly possum pet party. Having an awesome birthday or adoption day celebration for your four-legged friend? Or just want a fun excuse to throw a fun party with your friends from the dog park? Deck out your party with Molly and Bandit Pet Party Accessories, party products designed specifically for pets. There are wearables, including adjustable pet party hats, bow ties, and tutus. The photo prop kits include funny glasses and hats. The party supplies and decorations include coordinating table covers, party banners, cake decorations, and treat bowls, cups, and bags. Everything you need to create great memories and Instagram-worthy photos. They're available in two colorful themes, Tropical and Fireman. It's a dog's life. Celebrate it with Molly and Bandit Pet Party at mollyandbanditpetparty.com slash petlife. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Continuing our conversation with author Paula Munier about her latest book, Borrowing of Bones. Now, Paula, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, before the break, you were talking about how. You're just, I'm going to paraphrase this because I know it's much more detailed than this, but you're just uh, willy-nilly writing something out about the the book, you know, and all of a sudden your <laughs> editor has said, hey, this sounds so great. Let's write it. Why don't you just do a whole book? And by the way, we'll give you a three-book deal. <laughs> I know it's not that simple, but tell, <laughs> tell me about, you know, how that in your mind, was that something that like even crossed your mind that, hey, this could be something good and a good message to get out there and people would be entertained or was it really, you know, you're working on a project and uh, great things come from uh, hard work. Well, I think it was a little of both. Certainly it was serendipity. It was sort of a right place, right time kind of happening for me because people at that moment, there were people looking for mysteries with dogs in them. And I had written a dog memoir years before and I'd always written about dogs. And I always tell writers that they get published when they find that sweet spot where their talent meets the marketplace. I guess I should have figured out a long time ago that <laughs> dogs is where <laughs> whatever writing talent I had meets the, meets the marketplace. And so it was very serendipitous, but also, you know, it was people saying to me, oh, this is good. And sometimes that's what a writer needs to hear. This is good. Go this way. You know, take this material and, and go deep. And that's what I did. And it was great fun because it was, again, all the things I loved, I put in the book. I think that's very true. You know, it's it's a hard one as a writer to determine, you know, they always say write what you love and it will sell, which I, I believe is true. Once you write it, you know, put everything you got into that book, that message will get out there. If you've written it well enough, it will get out there. But like you said, it's there's also that, you know, from a, a conscious standpoint, from a publishing standpoint, there's that timing aspect. And so do you recommend as an author going out and looking for that, you know, talking to your editors and, and uh, publicists and agents to say, hey, what's hot in the market? Maybe I can write about that. Or is it stick to what you know and stick to what you love and uh, the rest will come about? The trouble with writing to the marketplace is that by the time you do and the book comes out, it could be that trend could be over. Right. So you could miss yeah. it. So I think that there's a balance there that you have to find what you really love, what you can communicate best what stories really resonate with you, and hopefully they'll resonate with readers too. But you also have to be cognizant of the marketplace and not expect the marketplace 
to bend to you because it's not going to. <laughs> so you have to, <laughs> you have to figure out, okay, this is what I'm writing. I want to write about this. This means the world to me. I can make this sing. I can make these people come to life. These characters come to life. This setting come to life. And here are the parameters in which I can do that in terms of marketplace. Yeah, and, you know, I think you're spot on about that because they face it, as you said, it takes five years to write a book. <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> you know, and, and it's very true because even if you, as a, as an author, already have it, you know, the manuscript written out, you maybe you've already put your pre five years into this thing. By the time it goes through all the series of editing and uh, the publishers decide when they want to put it out, at least it could be a couple of years down the road. And by then, the market, you know, how it is in a publishing game, it's uh, it changes. It changes, you know, every three months. There's something new that that's wanted out there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think the challenge, uh, do you see a challenge, or at least I do, but I'll see if you see this way, as far as the market is concerned, putting out a book, the publishing houses, they seem to like a particular idea at a particular time, but then all of a sudden there's an inundation almost of that type of book. There's six that come out all at one time, but six different offers or 12 or whatever it may be. How do you see uh, navigating through all that? Well, that's really tricky because sometimes something happens like Harry Potter, and then everybody wants Harry Potter-type books because readers want more Harry Potter-type books, and J.K. Rowling can only write so many books so fast. And so if you ride that bandwagon, that would be great if you're on that bandwagon for a while until it's over, (laughs) and you don't know when that over is coming. Lee Child once said that when it came to writing Jack Reacher and creating that character, he said, if there's a bandwagon, don't get on it. You know, and all the detective heroes at the time were sort of, you know, Spencer, Robert B. Parker, Spencer type characters. So he created Jack Reacher with no girlfriend, no dog, nothing but a toothbrush, you know. So he kind of went against type, but he made it work because he's Lee Child. And now Jack Reacher is this iconic character. So I think it's tricky. You know, how do you create something that's new or as they say in publishing, the same but different, which is what everybody wants, right? (laughs) Right. Just like insert bestseller here only different. <laughs> and, you know, and if you can articulate that difference, then you have a better chance of selling your book. Yeah, I think that's a great point. But you also, I, in my belief, you have to, if there's a particular genre or a particular writing style that you have, creating great characters and sticking with those great characters, adding new ones as you, as you go along can really make a nice long life for an author. You know, if you land the right particular characters that resonate with a certain audience, all of a sudden you're writing books every six months about those those characters and the uh, mysteries and the uh, you know the adventures that they go on. Right, and and if you can create that kind of character that everybody loves, that readers fall in love with, then the challenge is to keep on <laughs> keep that relationship going and creating stories and challenges for that character so that readers will come back time and time again. And the writers who do that, they're the real geniuses, because that's hard to do. Yeah, very hard to do. And very hard, to, in my opinion, to sort out, try to, you know, if you've written 5, 10, 12 of books with the same characters, trying to remember what they did the last time to make it, uh, as you said, uh, the same but different, <laughs> right. it can be a challenge. Yes, I was facing that with book two, so... Yeah. Yeah, So let's delve into that a little bit because here you are trying to uh, promote this book to get it off the ground. It's the big anchor to get this thing going. But now you've already written a second book. How do you navigate that? And then from a pure publicity standpoint, how do you remember what was in first book compared to what you just finished tidying up in book number two? Exactly. I think 
there's a real challenge there, you know, because book two, you have to write under a deadline. Book one, you took as much time as you needed to write book one and sort things out and make it as good as it can be. And book two, you're typically writing, you know, in a, six months to a year. So there's a time constraint, a, a hard stop you didn't have necessarily with book one. And so you have to figure that all out faster. And that's in terms of writing process, that's a challenge, I think, for a lot of writers, not just me, but it certainly was for me, too. And then as far as book one goes, for me, <laughs> book one was so much fun to write, you know, and I remember it so well. And, and book two was a chance to revisit these characters and keep their, their story going. So that part of it I love. But you do have to try to remember where you are. And I think book one, a borrowing a bone, it's my baby. So I can remember it because it's my baby. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the second kid nobody remembers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't, don't tell my second kid that, please. <laughs> it's always the second kid that's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, goodness. I can say that because I was the last one, so I, I was the good guy. So <laughs> the baby Absolutely. always. Absolutely. That's what they say. That's I what had, they. Yeah, they say that the first child makes the rules. The second child is the reason you need the rules. And the third child says the rules don't apply to me. <laughs> It's certainly true in my family. Yeah, I, I think yes. <laughs> I hope my sister doesn't listen to this episode, but yeah, it's <laughs> you may be right. You may be right on that one. So the type of writer you are, let's uh, talk a little bit about that. Are you a deadline thriving writer? Or are you uh, like me, wait till the last second to get most of the <laughs> material together? Or are you a, a 4 a.m. get up and write uh, you know 5,000 words and then start your rest of your day? Oh, who are those people? <laughs> I don't know if they still exist anymore. <laughs> I do, but I'm not one of them, that's for sure. I think, well, I started as a reporter. So when it comes to nonfiction, I'm very deadline-driven. You know, I can just sit down and do it. But when it comes to fiction, it requires so many more balls in the air for me, you know, and so much layering and polishing that it's really an iterative process. I have to go through draft after draft after draft to get it where I want it to be. And that's real interesting you say that. So you spend draft after draft after draft getting to where you want to be, knowing that the editors are going to want to, no matter how <laughs> you make it, they're going to want to change it or mix it up somehow. Absolutely. And I count on that. I count on their expertise to help me see what I couldn't see. I think you do get, it's like being caught in a snow globe with your own story. And you need someone to look at it from the outside and shake up the snow and see, okay, this might be better. You know. So if you're lucky enough to have a great editor, and I do, I have a great editor at Minotaur with Pete Wolverton. He's one of the reasons that A Borrowing of Bones has gotten good reviews. I give him all the credit because he has really helped me take the book to another level. Absolutely. Yeah. A really great editor will do that, you know, in a polite way to keep you motivated. Yes. 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 <laughs> yeah, you want a bunch of uh, what I'd call uh, in, in the olden days, red lines on, a, on your paper. You want, uh, you know, you don't want a bunch of uh, saying that was really nice, Tim, but go back and rework every chapter. You know, <laughs> never want yeah. that. But yeah, it makes a big difference, and, and especially because, like you said, it's your baby. You're so close to it that there's actually could be parts that you've sort of, for lack of better words, uh, glossed over or sort of didn't go into detail because you knew them so well. You figured everybody else would know them. Right, and sometimes I think you know what we think is most important about our book is not necessarily what the readers will think is most important. And sometimes there are missed opportunities in those early drafts of the manuscript. And a good editor can see those missed opportunities and say, hey, 
you should dramatize this more. You should deepen this section, that kind of thing that I think is really helpful. Absolutely. Yep. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. All right. So no 4 a.m. writing for you. That's (laughs) (laughs) not for me. I just sort of sit down every day. I like to have at least a couple hours at a time so I can really sort of lose myself in the story. And then just I know that if I do that every day for enough days in a row, I can get the first draft down. And I breathe a huge sigh of relief when I have the first draft (laughs) because for me now I have something to fix. And it's a great relief that I have something to fix. So I'm, I love revision. That's my favorite part. There you go. Got to like that. All right. So everybody, uh, tell us a little bit about how people can find out more about the book, uh, Borrowing of Bones, uh, where they can find it, where they can find out about you and uh, all your appearances and all the activity you got going on. Well, you can go to paulamunier.com, P-A-U-L-A-M-U-N-I-E-R.com. And I have a nice website there with all the, that information that you'll need. I will actually be tomorrow at the Boston Public Library with Kelly Garrett and Hank Phillippe Ryan and a bunch of cool mystery writers. And I'm doing a lot of events to promote the book and also simply to get out there with my fellow authors and readers. It's always great to get with uh, other authors too, isn't it? Just to pick their brain and share stories and uh, get maybe uh, still a little bit of their ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, don't tell them that. I've been long involved with Mystery Writers of America and International Thriller Writers and Sisters in Crime and all the crime writers organizations. And they're so supportive. And I have so many fabulous friends who've supported me on my journey, just as I've supported them. We go to each other's book signings and we, you know, we just support one another. And I think that's really important if you're a writer to find that tribe that can help you, your own scribe tribe that can help you through, because it's a tough business and through the ups and downs. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. It's a good point, so everybody out there. Get with your local authors. Get with your national authors. Any chance you get to get into a, uh, a forum uh, discussion with them at an event is always a, a great thing, whether it's a book uh, signed event at the local library or whether it's a uh, festival, one of your local independent festivals. It'd be great. It's always great. Get out there, pick their brains a little bit, and form those relationships. I think it's a good takeaway. So, uh, everybody, pick up a copy of the book, Borrowing of Bones. Uh, follow Paula on her website and uh, activities. Go out and meet her in person. Uh, you're going to love the book. It's a great, great novel, uh, fun mysteries, and it includes dogs and cats. So, it's always a winner there. So, Paula, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Good luck with everything, and we'll look forward to talking with you down the road. Okay. Well, thank you again so much. It's been lovely, lovely being on your show. Oh, my pleasure. Well, we're uh, coming to the end of the show today. I want to thank everyone for listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. I want to thank our sponsors and for producers uh, for making this show possible. Uh, if you have any uh, thoughts, comments, questions, or people you want to hear from uh, on the show, feel free to drop us a note. That's at PetLifeRadio.com. And while you're there, check out all the other wonderful shows and hosts. Uh, a whole plethora of great entertainment there at PetLifeRadio.com. So until next time. Write a great story, put it in a book, a blog, or an article, and who knows, you may be the next guest on Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have a great day. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.